Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can get access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. So my guest today is Sam Koppelman. Sam is a best-selling author and top speechwriter for many prominent politicians. Sam just co-wrote a book with former Attorney General Eric Holder called Our Unfinished March, The Violent Past and Imperiled Future of the Vote. In this episode, we talk about voter fraud, voter ID laws, voter suppression, gerrymandering. We talk about the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and the so-called gutting of that act in 2013. We discuss great replacement theory and much more. As you'll see, I'm skeptical of the narrative that voter suppression is a huge problem, that voter ID laws are racist, and so forth. While Sam doesn't quite go that far, I think there is some distance between his position on these topics and my own. And as we near the midterms, I'm going to have a few more guests like this that deal with electoral politics. So without further ado, Sam Koppelman. All right, Sam Koppelman. Thanks so much for coming on my show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I just had our mutual friend Yasha Monk on, and the three of us have hung out several times and talked about the topics in Yasha's book, the topics in your new book, and a lot of other stuff. So it's great to finally get you on. Yeah, no, this is exciting. I'm a fan of the pod and glad to be on it. So you've written a book with Eric Holder about voting rights, voter suppression, democracy, electoral security, voter fraud, all of these interconnected issues. But before we get to that, um, can you just give a little background of who are you? I know you've been a speechwriter. You've done all kinds of things. You've written books with, with various high-profile figures. So who are you and what was the path that led you to co-writing a book with the former attorney general of the United States? Yeah, you know, I worked on my first political campaign. I was like 16. And for some reason, I guess I'd learned about John Favreau, Obama's chief speechwriter, like as a figure in the culture. And I thought he seemed super cool. Like he was this young guy writing speeches with President Obama. That's pretty awesome. So he showed up at my internship and I was like, I'm going to be a speechwriter. And they were like, what are you talking about? And they had me write a speech. I'll never forget this on affordable housing in New York City. And I was like, bet. And I wrote the speech, 25 minute address for mayoral candidate, then comptroller. Bill Thompson. And obviously they threw it out and it was horrible, like just unreadable, not a good sentence in the thing. And uh, I never got to write another speech on that campaign. Obviously crazy. They trusted me to even write one. Mayoral campaigns are extremely short staffed. But when I got to high school and college, I was writing a bunch of columns on different political stuff and never really wanted to give up on the speech writing thing. And on Hillary's 2016 campaign, I was a volunteer surrogate speechwriter, which meant they've got all these different endorsers of the campaign. They all got to deliver speeches at different events. And so like I chipped in and would ghostwrite for all sorts of random big celebrities or senators or congresspeople or whatever. And then I ended up getting on that campaign full time. I think I was the youngest writer on that campaign. And your listeners may or may not know this, but Hillary Clinton did not win that election. So uh, I went back to college. I had this column for the Harvard Crimson full of a bunch of heinous columns as well, just called for shutting down the football team due to concussions, which was great for my social life, but even better for my social life for a column <laughs> calling on shutting down the final clubs or these mm. organizations that hosted every single good party on campus. So those were a couple of bad decisions, but so did you want to shut those down? Cause you weren't getting invited to them no, or were you it's invited a slightly to cooler story with a slightly <laughs> sadder ending where I wrote the piece because they like invited me. I don't know if you've seen the social network, but you know, there's that thing, they punch you to join. That's one of my clubs. favorite movies. It's the of best. All time. I think it's like one yeah. of the three best movies of the two thousands probably, but I agree completely. The whole premise of that movie, true or not, is that Zuckerberg was trying to be basically vindictive against Eduardo because he got punched. Get back at Final that girl Clubs. that and the girl Eric. So get back at that girl that rejected <laughs> exactly. him. But Final Clubs played a big role in that. Anyway, my friends and I got punched, like invited to join a bunch of these. And then he's sort of this like rebellious dude. And he was like, we should burn our punches. 
and say that we're not going to join until they include women and offer some kind of financial aid mm-hmm. and whatever else and have open punches. So it's not so exclusionary or whatever else. And I was like, all right, man. And we burned our punches and wrote this op-ed and then obviously did not join them. And then, you know, I plead the fifth on whether I ended up going to a couple of final club parties in my day, but the social <laughs> scene was pretty bleak. And I ended up dating a girl who. And they're like, you're the guys that tried to <laughs> yeah, destroy like, us, right? Hey. Let me in, right? So I can still come. I'm just not going to be a part of it, right? <laughs> no, but I, I then ended up basically spending half a college in Providence at Brown, where my girlfriend went to school, where they had plenty of social mm. things to do. But after I came back to school, you know, after the campaign, I started working full-time for Fenway Strategies while a student for those last two years of college. Fenway Strategies, the firm started by that guy, John Favreau, who initially had excited me about speech writing, and Tommy Vitor, who's one of his other hosts of Pod Save America. And, you know, got to write for a lot of leaders in business and tech and nonprofits and athletes and musicians and whomever else. Ended up working on the Biden campaign as director of surrogate speech writing and been on Beto's campaigns and worked with a bunch of different people in politics. Wrote a book with Neil Katyal and then just wrote this book with Attorney General Eric Holder. All right. So let's just dive into this topic. Basically, I just want to big picture frame what we're talking about as I see it. So if you imagine an America that had no partisanship and no left, right, bitter rivalries and hatreds, basically still be left with this problem of we want our elections to be secure. We want to make sure that no one's voting who isn't allowed to vote. We want to make sure that Russians aren't hacking our voting systems. We want to be confident that the election is not fraudulent, that the election is real. And at the same time, we want it to be easy to vote. No one wants to be stuck in line for even 20 minutes to say nothing of 30 minutes to an hour in order to vote, right? So we want elections to be both secure and easy. So you send that, which would be a challenge, just a logistical challenge in any country at any time, into a situation where we have the highest level of bitter partisanship in the past 50 years at least. It's like the polls on whether Democrats want their their kids to marry someone of the other party and vice versa are shocking. It's shocking. Like the level of hatred is, is shocking. And the level of wanting to win at all costs is shocking as well. And so that adds a whole new dimension to this problem of voting. And we've obviously seen, we're coming out of 2020, where Donald Trump made the really tried his darndest to actually overturn the elections, pulling out every stop he could and was unsuccessful in doing that, but did manage to persuade a huge chunk of the base that the election w- was stolen. And um, and so that's pretty much where we sit. And so I read your book and I'll put my cards on the table here. There's a lot of the way you frame this issue, I think, that there's going to be some distance between us in terms of I really, in a big picture way, I came away from your book thinking, here's how you frame it, basically. It's kind of like the last scene in The Karate Kid where the Cobra Kai instructor is telling his guy to sweep the leg and win at all costs. And then Daniel-san and Mr. Miyagi, are they just want to fight fair, right? And then we all celebrate because the good guys win. That seemed to be kind of the characterization of Republicans and Democrats in your book in terms of Republicans are fighting dirty, pulling out all the stops, making it harder for people of color to vote. And Democrats are more or less fighting fair Whereas my view of the situation is that it's basically a street fight. They're all fucking scumbags and um, they will do anything to win. They will pass policies that they perceive to benefit them or at minimum to be neutral to them. And so that's, I think, the big picture, maybe the big picture daylight between us. I'm, I'm curious if that jogs anything in you. Like, what is what is the crisis as you see it? What's the big picture as you see it? I think that's really smart. You know, anytime I'm compared to the Karate Kid, even in insults, Take that as a compliment. (laughs) Love it. But I actually think, you know, it's worth thinking about what each side is trying to do here and like what their motivations are. So I'm not convinced that this is remotely as black and white as that portrayal of the book sits. And I think that becomes much clearer when you get into the specific policies. But I think that if you just look in terms of basic incentives, put morality aside, Democrats believe, true or false, we can get into this, that when more people vote, they're going to win more elections. And Republicans believe, as Trump said, I think before 2020, that if you let everyone vote, we'd never win an election again. Mm -hmm. That's the mentality from both parties. I, we've probably talked about this offline. I think the whole idea that like demography is destiny is ridiculous from Democrats. 
I think that Republicans actually do a lot better when there's certain types of expansions to access to the ballot. Like, you know, a lot of 2020 hinged on mail-in ballots, a lot of that debate. And it's mm-hmm. common sense when you actually take a second to think about mail-in ballots. Like, who wants to mail in their ballot? Who needs to mail in their ballot? Predominantly older voters who happen to be in greater numbers white and happen to be in greater numbers Republican. So like, if this were truly just like a partisan street fight, you'd think the Republicans would be the ones fighting to expand access to mail-in ballots across the country. You'd think Democrats would be opposed to it. But there is this weird ideological thing that sort of sets up each party's view of this issue, which is that Democrats fundamentally believe that more people voting is better and Republicans fundamentally believe that more people voting is worse for them. I happen to come from a first principles place here where in general, I think security considerations are obviously important, but on net, I'm going to lean towards the side of just letting more people vote. And so I think that Democrats here are on the virtuous side, but I don't think it's because of any innate virtuosity. I think it's because pragmatically Democrats think that if this is a fair fight, they're going to win these elections. Not sure that that's true. All right. So we should linger here because we're speaking of a few weeks after the white supremacist Buffalo shooting and um, a few days after the horrifying you know, mass shooting of children, Texas. But because this has been in the news recently, I think this notion of demography is destiny. We should linger on this, right? The Buffalo shooter in his manifesto, his core driving concern which is not to legitimate it, but just to describe it, was that basically people of color are pouring into the country who are going to vote Democrat, going to change the character of the country um, in ways that the European uh, descended, quote unquote, core of the country will never be able to recover from. That white people will forever be outnumbered and they have to act now or lose their country, right? And this has been going by the name of great replacement theory, the idea that white people are being replaced in this country. As you noted, it seems that basically lots of Democrats and lots of Republicans agree with the empirical prediction here, which is to say you have lots of Democrats, you have lots of intellectuals that for 20 years on the left have been saying the way for Democrats to win is just to get more people of color, more immigrants into the country, and they're going to vote for us. We don't have to change our policies. We don't have to pander to the centrists and the independents. And then you have people on the far right saying, well, yeah, that's that's what's going to happen. And that's why we need a wall. And that's why we need to reduce immigration. And Yasha on this podcast a few weeks ago made the point, which you hinted at agreeing with, which is it's really not so black and white, because as we saw between 2016 and 2020, Trump got a higher percentage of the Latino vote, a higher percentage of the black vote. Many immigrants and people of color have socially conservative opinions uh, and are quite up for grabs as voters. A lot of people simply vote on their tax rate, which, which often will favor the Republican Party. A lot of business owners, single issue voters, um, regardless of their skin color. So what can you say about the wider fears of sort of great replacement and uh, changing demographics? I think beyond the obvious aspects of this that can be false equivalent where this guy took to violence and committed a heinous crime no one's in support of. I think the fundamental false equivalence of these two arguments is the great replacement argument or replacement theory argument for many of its most vocal supporters is predicated on a belief that the existing American culture, a culture shaped largely by whiteness as this theory describes it, is somehow superior to the culture that would be coming in, or that immigration writ large is changing America in ways that they're not supportive of. And so the takeaway from that is sort of like a normative claim that is in the vein of white supremacy, and that if you look at a lot of the people who talk about it, they're framing it as this battle of cultures fundamentally. On the other side, I think, first of all, that I do genuinely believe that it's on the level that Democrats, cosmopolitans, people who live in cities, just like the people who are making these policies tend to actually just like immigration more. Like, I don't think this is like some Trojan horse to win more elections. Like, I just like know people in politics. I think that no matter what you personally think of immigration, what anyone thinks, I don't think that this is some like Machiavellian scheme to win every election forever, to let, to open borders. I think, you know, 
that were the case, it's suspicious why Biden has taken so long to get rid of some of the pandemic policies having to do with immigrants, why there were more immigrants detained under President Obama in his first term than in Trump's first term. You know, like there, there's all these different stats that indicate that Democrats, if this, is, if this were their intent, are doing like a pretty horrible job of increasing immigration towards this end. I think that where I find the demography is destiny theory to be not just wrong and tactically wrong in terms of winning elections, because I think Democrats have to continue to persuade people, but also substantively and, and morally wrong, is that like I think it just strips agency of millions and millions and millions of people, cultures that are incredibly diverse, whose politics are incredibly diverse. It also erases the ability of groups to change their politics over time, as has happened throughout American history again and again and again and again. So I think both theories are basically junk, but one is essentially like a clash of civilizations type theory where you can understand how it leads to violence if you believed in it. And the other, I think, is mostly like an observant, wishful thinking from liberals that doesn't actually accord with their policy preferences and is fundamentally just messed up in the way that it flattens entire groups of incredibly diverse people. All right. So let's get into the topics you cover in the book. I guess a good place to start would be Shelby County versus Holder, your co-author uh, on this. Yeah, we call it the Shelby County case. He's the first <laughs> to drop the uh, second half of that. He calls it Shelby County versus me. So I think most, hopefully most people are familiar with the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which in effect gave people, gave black people in the Jim Crow South the practical right to vote, where they have, may have had a theoretical right to vote for quite a long time. That was de facto not real because of poll taxes, literacy tests, and all sorts of clever ways, uh, you know, grandfather clauses, all, all kinds of ways of practically ensuring that black people could not vote in many places. The 1965 Voting Rights Act ended that. So can you describe the relationship between the 1965 Voting Rights Act and the Supreme Court case, Shelby County versus Holder in 2013. How did that change the game? Yes. So, you know, 1965, Voting Rights Act happens, but then it's reauthorized three times afterwards, each time by a Republican president. And the last time was 2006. George Bush was president. The vote in the Senate was 98 to zero. Mitch McConnell, Hillary Clinton, everyone was like, yeah, totally. It's the Voting Rights Act. It's like the crown jewel of the civil rights movement. More of that. It ends up going to the Supreme Court Specifically, Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act comes under scrutiny. And what that section did is it essentially gave the Department of Justice or courts the right to pre-clear any new laws passed by states that had a pattern in the past of discriminating against Black voters. So if they wanted to close down a bunch of polling sites, the DOJ would have to pre-clear that or a court in the state would have to pre-clear that before it could go into effect. And the arguments in this case are really interesting. And Essentially, John Roberts comes down on the side of saying in his majority ruling that America's fundamentally changed and that these states are not going to pass similar bills again. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And when you're talking about these states, you're, you're, you're talking about, you know, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi. It's the Confederate you know. states and then a couple of like districts that had been problematic, quote unquote, problematic in the past like at the time, literally, you know, enacting their own Jim Crow policies, even though they were in Confederate states. In her dissent, Ginsburg basically says like, yeah, America has changed, but getting rid of preclearance because there's no voter suppression right now is like throwing out your umbrella in the middle of a rainstorm because you're not getting wet. And the idea is like, we can get rid of this stuff, but folks will start trying to pass these laws again right away. And, you know, in a matter of days, Texas then puts forth a bill that is designed to make it harder to vote and becomes a source of a ton of controversy. And over the last decade, we've seen bill after bill after bill after bill that's like this, whose intent is to make it harder to vote. And again, as you and I kind of alluded to earlier, I'm not convinced that like the partisan valence of these issues and the impact is the same as the intention from the people who passed them. But what's happened is in those states that used to be covered. You've seen disproportionately more voter purges. You've seen disproportionately more closures of polling places. You've seen disproportionately more laws passed that make it harder to vote. There's also been, for various other reasons, and in some cases in backlash because of the organization that takes place after these laws are passed, increases in turnout in various places. That's interesting. But across the board, you've seen, and when people run regressions, it comes to be that like 
there are these bills that are passed that at the margins really do lead to a lot lower turnout in certain places among certain types of people. But the point is that each of these bills is passed and it would not have been approved prior to Shelby, but is approved now and leads to this new regime of voter suppression that on its face is racially neutral, party neutral, but impacts people in demonstrably different ways. Okay, so one argument about Shelby would be, so basically the status quo for 50 years was Mississippi was playing by a different set of rules than New Jersey. Mississippi had to ask permission from the DOJ to do anything, right, to its electoral system because it had this history going back to the 19th century of Jim Crow, whereas New Jersey was given a good faith presumption, a change in the vote was not in any way racist or benefiting one party, right? And so either this is this was meant to be a permanent circumstance that certain states, we, we play by two sets of books, which would be perceived by the South probably as forever punishing it for its history of racism. And a good faith interpretation of, or let's say a charitable interpretation of the Shelby decision is, listen, all those Northern states have a massive history of discriminating against Black people too. Segregation, Jim Crow laws, they didn't have, actually some of them did have slavery. Many of them did have slavery, just not quite to the same extent. And to say that you are going to forever subject states in the South 50, 60 years after the end of Jim Crow is humiliating. And shouldn't there be some, this status quo can't be here forever. So what's going to replace it? Right, so- not to get too in the weeds, but basically there was this formula, the coverage formula that decided who was going to be have to go through this thing called preclearance. And that's what the Supreme Court ruled was unconstitutional. And so Democrats in Congress went back and thought that they were going to just pass a new coverage formula. And there's all sorts of talk about this, but basically like, you know, have you passed restrictive voting bills in the last two decades? And, you know, then it updates constantly. So the way these laws play out now is Preclearance was great because it could stop it before going into effect. But obviously, if there's a racially disparate impact, it can still be litigated, as happened with North Carolina's voting rights bill after Shelby County, and still be tossed out. Because it's just like clearly designed and implemented in a way that's racially disparate. And so what would have happened is like, you know, states would have passed a bunch of these laws if Congress had put a new coverage formula in place. And then those would have been adjudicated in court. And once those states had been found to be passing suppressive laws again, they would be covered once more by DOJ. So in that way, you're not punishing states for actions in the distant past, you're constantly updating it with feedback and new information. So that would have been a good deal. But here's the thing, like, and this is why I think this is ultimately fundamentally a partisan fight based on self-interest. Once the Supreme Court opened that door, Republicans never again were going to support any version of the Voting Rights Act with an updated coverage formula. And it's worth like actually considering this, like 2006, that's only seven years before Shelby County, 98-0. So nothing of substance really changed between 2006 and 2013 in terms of the types of people who would be governing these states, really. And afterwards, you couldn't even get a few Republicans to sign a reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act with an updated coverage formula that didn't go back to slavery, Confederacy, Jim Crow. So from that moment, you can kind of see which party thinks that its interest is in expanding access to the ballot and which thinks it's in restricting it. No, I mean, definitely. I I agree with you. I think Republicans, rightly or wrongly, you know, I I think the attitude is probably something like this. I don't, if I'm a Republican, I don't know that making it a little harder to vote is going to help me, but I I think it's at most neutral to positive for me and my party. And I think if, if I'm a Democrat, I think making it easier and easier to vote. Again, I don't know that it's going to help me, but I'm perceiving it as neutral to positive for me. And I think that calculation comes first in their head. And then all of these moral arguments about the inherent good of spreading democracy come on the back of those self-interest calculations. So, so, I mean, that's basically how I perceive it. But I want to talk about, so when you talk about these restrictive voting laws, this is an area where I think I may have some disagreements too because I don't see voter ID law as inherently a bad thing, requiring to show a voter ID law. So how do you define these restrictive voting laws? And why do you see them as being sort of undemocratic or uh, having a disparate impact and, and so forth? In this book, we actually differentiate ourselves a bit from the orthodoxy on this. We propose voter ID, but make it free. It's like our proposal. And the idea is 
everyone should be able to use any existing ID that they have. So, you know, in Texas, you're allowed to use your, your concealed carry permit as an ID to go vote, but you're not allowed to use your student ID. Like on its face, you understand like the motivation of the people who would pass a bill like that. And if you didn't think the student ID process... Even that one, is there a charitable version that is one government issued and one is issued by... Right. So I was going to say, so you could, so, so you could decide to do is have student IDs be government issued. So our, our approach is like, look, government can set the standard for what IDs need to be used. That's fine. But they should then make that accessible to anyone who wants an ID. It should show up on your 18th birthday. You should have your voter ID in the mail. You should be able to go get one at the voting place if you want by showing any other kind of ID. Everyone should just have free access to voter ID. The issue in a state like Texas is if you didn't have an ID when their bill passed right after Shelby, you'd have to get a birth certificate. And if you didn't have your birth certificate, you basically need to spend like $22 on a birth certificate. And just you like look at the history of the country and the idea of having to pay to be to have access to the ballot is just like is just fundamentally wrong. And then you looked at who was disproportionately dislikely to have IDs, unlikely to have IDs in these states. And it was black Latino voters. And then you look at places like Alabama that would pass these bills. And they did at the same time, they closed a bunch of DMVs, particularly in these neighborhoods. And like, it was clearly an insidious attempt to make it harder for certain people to vote. Again, like the data is confused on this, on whether that actually works. Like it is possible that what happens is in response to that, there's more organizing, more righteous anger, and a bunch of people end up going to the polls. But like, you could have done a charitable reading to a bunch of the Jim Crow laws that were passed because they were also facially racially neutral, but obviously would have disparate impact. And so I think you got to look at like, fundamentally, is this on the level? Like, is this actually just trying to across the board, create more election security? And if not, and it's impacting one group way more than it's impacting another, I think it's pretty clearly at least an attempt to suppress the vote among certain groups. Okay, so that's an allegation I'm not ready to make. So I want to give a full download of the charitable take of voter ID laws. Okay. As I see it. Great. So voter ID laws, photo government issue ID laws are the norm around the world to vote. Almost every country in Europe, Canada, pretty much every country except certain US states, Australia and New Zealand, every country you could think of, you need a government issued ID in order to vote. And it's not the case that voter fraud is rampant or widespread or systemic, like Republicans have alleged in the 2020 election, but it does happen. You know, there are like hundreds of convictions for voter fraud all the time. And, um, you know, not all of these would be covered by an ID, but as an analogy, you know, Russians tried to hack some software in the 2016 election in Trump's favor, quite likely. And it turned out they weren't successful and it was very kind of rare and it didn't do all that much. But we still really want to shore up our system, right? The fact that it's not uber successful is not a reason not to guard against it. And so considering that almost everywhere in the world does this and people rightly or wrongly have concerns about fraud, they want to feel more trust in their elections, why not have a policy like this? And then the final point is, okay, over 90% of Americans have a, some kind of government-issued ID, probably according to projectvote.org, which I'm not, I wonder if, if you know about them as an organization, 95% of white people have some government-issued ID, whereas 87% of black people do, which is a disparity. But what I think would actually happen is if we had a federally mandated government-issued photo ID law, you need government ID to vote. And that became the norm. People who wanted to vote would know that and quickly adjust. It would be like before, I think it was 1996, you didn't need a government ID to fly on a plane. So I'm sure when they changed that law, some people got caught up in the law change and came to the airport without an ID. But as the norm became widespread, now everyone knows you triple check for your ID before you go fly on a plane. And it wouldn't be such a, such a big deal. Yeah. I mean, this is why sort of fundamentally I'm in favor of voter ID laws as long as everyone has access to voter IDs. And I guess it's true that people would just go get it if they needed to vote. If it costs $22 to go get your birth certificate and then convert that to an ID that's this government issued ID and you're in Texas where the minimum wage is $7.50 an hour and like you're like me and like you don't love either of the candidates and like you just like one a little more than the other. I'm not sure that you'd like jump through those hoops to go vote. And because my first principle prior is that it should just be as easy as possible to vote, like I just would want those voter IDs, ID bills to be passed in concert 
with laws and policies and programs that make it really easy, simple, cheap to get IDs. And that's why I come out on that side in the book. And I think there's very little daylight. And ultimately, I think the debate we're having is about the intent of the laws. And I think the conversation from earlier about incentives makes me think like, I don't know, it's probably the case that like the reason one party consistently is in favor of this and the other party isn't is like self-interest. You just think about politicians and who they are and how they act. I think that's probably right. And I don't think that it's some earnest, genuine attempts to control electoral interference. I mean, that's not, in my view, what's motivating the Republican Party. I think regardless of what you think about that, a sensible place to come out is voter ID, but free and widely accessible. I think basically self-interest motivates 90 plus percent of political rhetoric and posturing. Like I said at the beginning, I, I really think most of them are scumbags. And so that's my view as well. Yes. Yeah. So like the intentions matter less to me than whether the policy is perhaps a good policy in the long run. So like, for example, flipping the partisan valence here, should felons have the right to vote? Maybe you shouldn't have the right to vote when you're in prison. I don't know. But I think the moment you get out of prison, we should stop punishing you, right? It's like, if you're sentenced to five years, why does your, why should it make sense that we're not letting you vote for another 10, right? That's just, you haven't been sentenced for 15 years, so we shouldn't be punishing you for that long. That's my belief, right? I support giving ex-felons the right to vote. But I don't think that Democrats are standing on this issue out of, you know, politicians at least, out of some kind of moral place. I think that it's, they know most ex-felons, the balance of ex-felons are, are, they lean Democrat, right? So it's not going to hurt them for ex-felons to vote. And that's, that's part of it. Yeah, so that's true of the politicians. But Sorry, go ahead. Anyway, so when it comes back to this issue of the intentions of Republicans in passing these voter ID laws, do they see it as neutral to positive for them? I'm sure. And is, is that a key element, a necessary and sufficient, at least a necessary condition for them supporting the policy? Yes. Do I really care? Not really, because I think you have to evaluate the policy on the soundness itself. And the way I hear voter IDs spoken about in the past five years is almost always in terms of the intentions, the racist or selfish intentions of Republicans. And I think that's the wrong way to frame the issue. Yeah. I mean, you look at the felon issue and I think like this is when it's good to separate the people from the politicians who represent them. So what's cool about that one is like you look at Florida, they had a referendum on that. Mm-hmm. 65% of the state, Florida, same election that they elected Ron DeSantis as governor by a much bigger margin than they elected Ron DeSantis, voted to let formerly incarcerated people vote. And then the Republican government that was in office put up all these barriers where basically you had to prove that you didn't owe any kind of money or restitution or anything. And there was no way to confirm that because that database was like out of date. And so to this day, years later, essentially no formerly incarcerated people in Florida are voting. There you can sort of crudely see where, how the intent impacts the policy and how far the politicians are from the people who genuinely just looked at that issue like you and I do. And they're like, yeah, you have a sentence of five years. You should be able to vote after five years. It's pretty sensible. And I think part of this book is looking at the history and clearly we've come an incredibly long way. But the way these voter ID laws make a difference in these states where they're closing DMVs and whatever else You can imagine with elections as close as the ones that we've seen in recent history, that if you shave turnout by 1%, 2%, you could see a totally different outcome. And I think ID is sort of the less illustrative topic to focus on in terms of these types of policies, which is why in our book, we come out in this sort of middle ground of ID, but make it free. But you look at somewhere like Georgia, where they've closed, and you had a really interesting thread about Georgia. The book you say is, it's, you don't want a photo ID. You think photo IDs are Yeah, right. we think photo IDs are a like huge barrier to entry as it is now. But if the government implemented a photo ID and gave it to everyone for free, I would be completely on board with that policy. Which is that's not accessible to people now. So it's like in the prospective, like, yes, photo ID laws where everyone has access to a photo ID for free and cheaply and near them. I think that's like something that makes a lot of sense. But if you look at Georgia and you had a really interesting thread, I remember in the past about certain aspects of Georgia's policy, but you look at all the poll closures and stuff that have taken place. And in the Atlanta region, like the Atlanta metro region in the suburbs, the predominantly black neighborhoods had an average weight at their precincts 
of like 50 minutes, like 48. And the white ones had waits of around six minutes. And like, that's the kind of thing where you can see how in an election decided by 20,000 votes, maybe 10% fewer people want to go vote, maybe 2%, maybe 3%. But it ends up leading to massive radical consequences. And you just want a system in place that leads to less of that and to more access to the polls. And I think like, regardless of intent, this is like an on the merits thing, where if you believe in democracy, if you believe in more people voting being better, then you think that the policies that lead to a disparity like that shouldn't be passed. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I I hate to see anyone wait 30 minutes to vote. It's ridiculous. And, you know, I might, if I didn't care too much about the outcome, that might deter me. So you cite this report called, I think, Waiting to Vote by the Brennan Center for Justice in your book, which is a really deep dive into the wait times that people experienced broken down by race and broken down by all kinds of variables in 2018. And so I hear your example of Atlanta, but it seems like this document did a systematic sort of assessment of overall wait times in 2018. And basically what they found is the following. They found that the average wait time for a black person and, or a Latino person was nine and a half minutes. And the average wait time for a white person was six and a half minutes. And they also looked at the percent of voters who waited over 30 minutes, which is, you know, the far end of the tail. And they found 7% of black voters did, 6.5% of Latino voters did, and 4.1% of white voters did. And then they asked the logical question, so why is this happening? Is it because there are fewer polling places, fewer electoral workers, fewer voting machines that are causing the buildup and came to the conclusion that it was none of those things. And in fact, whiter counties, a quote it, whiter counties, counties tended to have fewer resources per voter than less white counties. So it's kind of a mystery where the source of the wait times are coming from. And so I was kind of astounded to read that because it seemed like the upshot was since Shelby, Republicans have been passing all these laws, closing all these places. And as a result, black people have to wait longer when in fact, at least as of 2018, the rigorous analysis is that whiter counties tended to have fewer overall resources than blacker counties, even though, so it seems mysterious and really open to question what's going on here. Yeah. I mean, that report's really interesting. To me, trying to figure out the causal relationship between each individual bill that's passed and what that does to wait times is complicated. I don't even have an initial best guess as to like a single explanatory variable. You know, I think the one stat of like people who had to wait over 30 minutes, was that the second stat you cited? Yeah, yeah. People who've had to wait over 30 minutes. So 7% black, 7% versus 4% white. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's like, you know, more than 60% more black people have to wait over 30 minutes to vote than white people. That's a pretty big and statistically significant gap. And I think maybe it's not a question of resources, but you look at these laws being passed again and again and again, and this being the outcome. I don't know. I like, it's hard to fully understand the mechanism through which it happens, which is obviously important because that's what we want to fix. But like, I think that they need to clearly do more research in this space and figure out how to draw those links because the disparity is notable and significant, even if the number of minutes in the vast majority of cases that people have to wait is not preventative. Yeah. So, I mean, my gripe with this is it's not that there aren't enough polling places in black counties, enough electoral workers. It's something complicated that we don't yet understand. Why is it talked about as basically a weapon against Republicans that it's talked about as Jim Crow 2.0, which I think is a really toxic and sort of cynical way to frame it. Because when it becomes about Jim Crow 2.0, everyone's blood pressure grows up and it becomes all about, I'm not a fucking racist. No, I've seen the video of people getting hosed down in the civil rights movement and I'm not that. And how dare you make this conversation about that? And that's been the whole tenor of the conversation. Yeah. I mean, from my perspective, I think comparing the two is completely outrageous, obviously. I mean, we spent a lot of time studying the history of Jim Crow, Mm -hmm. particularly as it pertained to voting, researching this book. And we're talking about mass lynchings of people who tried to vote. Mm -hmm. We're talking about mass arrests of people who tried to vote, stuff that is unimaginable today. And you compare that to elections where you're breaking 
records in turnout. And I think it's offensive to try to equate the two. Mm-hmm. I think you see the fact that there are these disparate outcomes and there are these motivations that seem suspect based on the beliefs from each party about the outcomes that these laws will lead to. Mm-hmm. And I think you don't want to wait until you're in a situation where access to the ballot really is far off before you try to combat the ideology that leads to these kinds of restrictions. And I think, you know, we spend a lot of the book talking about systemic stuff, the ways in which different people are represented in our institutions, because those seem like, to me, greater crises of our democracy at a scale that impacts more people. When you look at this specific issue in terms of turnout, obviously, comparing these two things is completely outrageous. One note I would add, like sort of a coda, is you look at the attempts to take election administration out of the hands of nonpartisans and put it into the hands of partisans. So you look at like the the ways in which after 2020, the Republican parties at the state level has been trying to work to make sure that next time it's possible that they could refuse to certify an election, kicking people off the boards who were independent last time, replacing them with partisans in states like Georgia, moving election administration into the hands of the state legislature, which is really gerrymandered and Republican, so they can be the ones who ultimately decide this. Then you start to see the ways in which you could get to a situation where a bunch of votes are erased, millions and millions of votes, where if, say, the result in Georgia last time had been thrown out because you had a partisan commission that suddenly was throwing out the result of the election, it's not as far off as it may seem. And those results are more of a kind where you could start using more histrionic language. But at this point, obviously, with these bills... I don't think it's remotely analogous to the stuff that came before. So I will say I am five to 10 times more concerned about the kind of thing Donald Trump tried to do succeeding as a result of the kinds of changes you just mentioned than I am about voter suppression. I found much of the conversation about voter suppression to be exaggerated. And here's, I guess, I see two big picture threats to our faith in democracy. One comes from the Trump right, which is that he is literally convinced tens of millions of people, maybe over hundred million people, that he won the election fair and square, that the election was a fraud. And actually just this documentary just came out by Dinesh D'Souza, which I'm like 30 yeah, minutes wild. into and seems like a, unfortunately a really well done piece of propaganda to cement this belief in people's head. That guy's a genius at convincing people of false looting theories. Yeah. Like I saw the way he edited up, edited Joe Biden when he said he had a voter fraud commission mm-hmm. or voter suppression commission that was supposed to study suppression. Mm-hmm. And he made it look like in the film, it was a commission to commit voter fraud. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's like that guy is so brilliant at being bad, but yeah. yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's a huge, massive threat. Yeah, I think that's the biggest threat. What I would say is the second biggest threat is I could envision in the next 10 years a Democrat claiming to have won an election and trying to overturn it on account of voter suppression in the way that Stacey Abrams did in 2018, where she claimed to have won that election, even though there was like a 50,000 vote margin between her and Kemp. And she said that margin was the result of voter suppression. So, you know, that hasn't happened on a presidential level yet. And I still think the right wing threat is bigger at this point. But I worry that if we get too far in the unskeptical kind of coverage of the voter suppression narrative, we will see a Democrat do that playbook where it's not true. I mean, I think that a world in which a Democrat was questioning the results of the election and saying that we should throw them out and overturn them. And then that happened. I think that would be horrifying. Like, I agree with you. I just think we have one party that's actively doing this right now. Like we have Republicans. Trump really did try through the courts, calling and intimidating different election officials, trying Mm -hmm. to convince Michigan certifiers to come to the White House. We had like an active slow motion coup attempt culminating in January 6th. But January 6th aside, if that hadn't happened, I think there was really reasonable justification to be concerned that in 2024, Republicans at the state level would be working to make sure that an attempt like Trump's could succeed. I've seen no evidence that Democrats, despite saying that this is an unjust system, would in any way try to interfere with like the certification of elections. So I just don't view it as a legitimate short-term threat. I can imagine the discourse going in that direction, especially if more suppressive bills get passed and the rhetoric obviously is going to continue to heat up, but I just have a really hard time believing that. 
And then I think more fundamentally, like you just look at the entire design of American democracy, Supreme Court, where five of nine justices were appointed by presidents who came to office after losing the popular vote, Senate, where there's 50 Democrats, 50 Republicans, 40 million more votes for Democrats for the same number of seats. You like look at these things. It doesn't seem like it's going to be the Democratic Party that somehow gets a hold of power, even though they're supported by a minority of the people. It seems to me like Republican minority rule is in some ways already in effect and in other ways can be intensified as like a clear and present danger right now, like a five alarm fire. And I don't see that as the same on the other side. So you're saying the five alarm fire is the fact that Republicans can get elected without the winning the popular vote? Is the attempts to make it so that even if they lose the electoral college, right. a system that's already rigged in their favor, and then they can use like institutions like the Senate and Congress which are responsible for certifying the presidential election ultimately through the Electoral College. Like that's the whole reason that they went to the Capitol was because that's ultimately, you know, the Senate's responsibility. And the fact that those institutions are also governed by minority rule makes it so it seems pretty reasonable as a near future possibility that we could have a Democrat win the popular vote, win the Electoral College on paper, and either at the state level through denial of certification or at the federal level through a minoritarian Senate that result gets thrown out and a Republican is commander in chief, even though they didn't win the election. Yeah, I think that's definitely priority number one, preventing that from happening. So let's talk about what could go right here. Let's try to end on an optimistic note. We have all these problems, voter fraud perceived as a huge problem on the right, suppression perceived as a huge problem on the left. And then again, I come back to this basic nonpartisan desire to have secure elections where it's easy to vote. What kind of solutions, I mean, you mentioned, you know, there are countries where mandatory voting is a thing. Australia, voting is mandatory. And if it's mandatory, then it's impossible for voter suppression to even be a concern. Just everyone has to vote. What would you make of that kind of solution in America? Yeah, I mean, I'm in favor of mandatory voting. I don't think that the American people are. I think compulsory behavior from the government is just not something that any Americans are going to sign up for, like individualist nature. It's just not going to happen. But I do think there are things we can do to nudge us in that direction that also increase security. So, you know, if you do automatic voter registration, that process will require constant maintenance of the voter rolls. You're going to need to know every citizen's automatically registered. When they move, you update where they're registered. There's an ID that likely matches that in government databases. This is all being done through a system that is designed to make it so that there's one person, one vote. So you do that, you fix a lot of the problems with election administration, with IDs, with access to the ballot. Feels like a clear path towards progress. Mm -hmm. And then if you want actual concrete hope, I think that the thing that could pass in theory, if you think about partisan preferences, is a ban on gerrymandering, partisan gerrymandering. And I do think downstream of that is just a tremendous amount of progress and a huge wound to partisanship. So I don't think it's in dispute that when either party's in power and they have the chance to gerrymander, they'll choose to gerrymander. Republicans caught Democrats asleep in the wheel at the wheel in 2010 and did some all-time historic gerrymandering that helped preserve their power for the next decade in state legislatures and in Congress. And people talk a lot about gerrymandering as being unfair, just in like the one person, one vote sense. Like, you know, why should certain voters be drawn into one district where their voices matter more or less than another? But I think like the most insidious thing about gerrymandering is the partisanship that results because you have these blowout elections with gerrymandering. And that means that candidates are way more worried about facing a primary than facing a general election. Mm -hmm. So they end up passing extreme views that are extreme policies that are based on views that the people do not hold. So you look at these most extreme abortion restrictions, even in red states, the majority of people do not support bans on abortion with rape and incest. Like not even not even close. You go look at issues like universal background checks, not even close. Voter ID laws, for that matter, would pass and have a lot of popularity and certain States, that's what I'm saying. And Democratic gerrymandered districts, you know, and legislatures would never pass those. So if you're thinking about what could Republicans and Democrats in Congress agree on, that's an actual structural reform with huge downstream consequences. Banning gerrymandering kind of makes some sense. It's not something that we'll necessarily see right away, but it's something that I think would have massive positive ramifications and also lower the temperature of politics in general. Because if state legislatures looked more like the people they represented and legislated that way, we wouldn't have 
calamitous bills on the verge of passing all the time that people are completely distraught about. And so mm-hmm. that's one area where I think we really could make progress. Yeah. So on the mandatory voting thing, I think what we'd run into is not only our individualists get off my lawn culture, but we'd also run into the right would see it as not in their self-interest um, for the same reasons they, they don't see shorter wait times to be in their self-interest. Um, but the left, I think what would happen is a lot of people wouldn't show up to vote and the punishment for that would be a fine. And then it would be these fines are disproportionately affecting black people and people of color, right? That I'm pretty sure that would result from a mandatory voting scheme too. So I think everyone would have a reason to oppose it. What about an idea like a federal holiday for voting, which would take some of the sting out of a 30 minute wait time? Yeah. I mean, we're in favor of that. I think in general, like voting just on election day is a problem. Like early voting makes a lot of sense. Most states do it. It's common sense that some people work Tuesdays, some don't. It's a work day. It was originally passed as a farming holiday because like you had to go to the market afterwards and then come back to harvest your crops. Like it's completely arbitrary. It doesn't make a lot of sense. I actually still have to do that every Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's designed just for Coleman and for farmers from hundreds of years ago. But um, I think like early voting is a no-brainer. Election day holiday makes some sense as long as you also have early voting because, you know, if it's a holiday but then some people have to take care of their kids because they're not in school. Then those people disproportionately don't have access to the polls. Like, there's no reason we should put all of our eggs in the basket of voting one day. But yeah, I mean, I think a holiday makes sense. I think early voting makes sense. Man, automatic voter registration, same day registration. All that stuff is completely common sense, good governance internationally. It's what a lot of places do. Like, it's just kind of a, a back to basics approach. All right. So I guess that brings us to the end of this conversation. I think that's all the topics I want to cover. Can you point my listeners in the direction of your book and of any other work you may want to follow up with them, your Twitter handle? Yeah, the book has been compared to The Karate Kid by some of your favorite <laughs> podcast hosts, including Coleman Hughes. That's spin. That's calm. So that's what I do, guys. Uh, Our Unfinished March is what it's called, written by Eric Holder with me. Definitely read it. I'm at Sammy Koppelman on Twitter. Coleman, super grateful for a thoughtful conversation on this. A topic that's almost never talked about with any nuance and the temperature is way too high. And it's good to actually be able to talk about the numbers and beliefs and first principles that impact our views on this. Yeah. Thanks, Likewise. Thanks, Sam. If you appreciate the work I do, the best ways to support me are to subscribe directly through my website, colemanhughes.org, and to subscribe to my YouTube channel so you'll never miss my new content. As always, thanks for your support.